Hello and welcome to Always Take Notes. In this episode, Simon spoke to Claire Conville of Conville & Walsh. So Claire's one of the best-known literary agents in London. I interviewed her at their offices on Haymarket. We talked about her career, uh, what it means to be a literary agent, what the job involves, and also uh, why they've rechristened the slush pile, the talent pool. We hope you enjoy the episode. So I'm here with uh, literary agent Claire Conville. Claire, if you could tell us uh, a little bit for starters about your background and entry into this world. How did you become a literary agent? Um, I was lucky enough to be headhunted to be a Puffin publicity officer when I was 24 and even luckier to work with the generation of writers for children who are extremely influential and interesting and fun. Uh, most notably, I suppose, Roald Dahl, um, but among other people, Quentin Blake and Posey Simmons, um, and a host of others, Dick King-Smith. Um, and uh, from that, I um, became a publicity director with Jonathan Cape, Bodley Head, children's books, and from that I became a children's publisher with Random House, now Penguin Random House, and after maybe seven years in that world, um, I needed and wanted to change, and I would, was offered redundancy, and I joined AP Watt as a um, agent working one day a week, and from that I built my career. Okay, and had children's books been a, a long-term interest of yours before you started working in that world? Well, I was much younger than I am now, yes. so uh, it didn't really, I grew up passionately reading everything I could lay my hands on and books for children were always part of that and I suppose my interest didn't really go away as an adult and I still read children's books and I represent writers for children Um, but it didn't age 24 that world didn't seem very far away at the time. Right where had you been before you were headhunted? I'd worked uh, as a teacher and as an antiquarian book cataloguer and as a um publicist in the theatre. And then how did that, that route from this, this one day a week to your, your current position here, how did that, that progress develop? Uh, well, um, uh, I sort of book by book, writer by writer, year by year, and you build experience and you develop your taste and your instincts and your, I hope, a degree of vision about what you want to do, and that's how gradually... I evolved as an uh, as an agent, and then you set up Complimosh in two thousand. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, and what was the decision to, to set up your own your own shop? Um, I think the decision was based on the fact that it was based on lots of life changes in my private life, and the belief that probably I would never achieve what what I wanted to achieve in a conventional agency. Okay. Is that quite normal for, for one generation of agents to sort of set out on their own and set up their it's own? It's quite rare, I think. Okay. It's yeah. quite rare. And how does the, the current setup here work? We've just come through, I should say, we've just come through several buzzing rooms full of, full of agents. So what is the... This is all Curtis Brown here? Or so, the... so how it works is this. There, um, it, there are a number of companies here. Hmm. Curtis Brown Books, there's Curtis Crown Creative, there's Cuba, there's uh, Alex Fame Productions, there's what we now call C&W, and we are in a kind of cosmology. 
Okay. So we're separate companies, but we interrelate and we report to one overall board. Okay. So the idea is that we run independently, we make our own decision, decisions, we um, have our own uh, ideas and challenges and vision for what we want to do, but through OT and the Coast Supreme Group, we have access to wonderful um, film and TV department, we have access to a brilliant contracts department, we have to an audio department, we have, to have access to live events. So for in a, in a complicated and challenging publishing landscape, we can offer our authors the very best across all sorts of, in, in, across all sorts of different... Routes. And your area of that is still called Cumberland Walsh? Or C&W. It? C&W, yeah, okay. Walsh's left. So uh, it's called C&W, there were 15 of us. Yeah. We're probably quite a bit more left field. Uh, okay. We focus on... A lot of first-time writers, indeed. I'm sending out a very exciting first novel tomorrow, which I found on what used to be called the slush pile, but we now call um, the talent pool. Um, and uh, that is our mission, is to find original voices with a very strong personal DNA whose careers we can support and evolve over a number of years. Yeah, and I was going to move that leads very naturally to my next question, which was about the kind of you know the business of agenting of what what it involves, both for someone like yourself who's right at the top of the organisation, and for you know, some of the people who are working for you. What is that? What do their days look like? What are their? Okay, no one works for me. Okay. everybody works with me, and I work with them. Um, so uh, it depends. I mean, you know, foreign rights have a very yeah. different approach and role, say, than what we call the primary agents. Sure. But um, the team is very important, we're very, very mutually supportive, and our aim is to find these new writers to help them, uh, perhaps editorially in the first instance, yeah. sell their books first into the UK and then internationally, possibly onto film and TV, um, and if necessary, lead them in other directions as well. So maybe to teach on a creative writing course, or to indeed script write, a lot of writers I've taken on are now developing careers alongside writing novels or um, uh, non-fiction, they're now uh, working on scripts. So Misha Glenny, who I represent, who um, is the author of Mafia, which has recently been made into a big, huge TV yeah. series, is actually working on a, 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 a another TV series. It's his own idea. Okay. It's fiction. I mean, it's fiction-based, although it draws on a lot of his experience yeah. um, and research. Um so that these are, this is kind of the opportunity we hope to be able to uh, offer our authors. And for the people who, with whom I work, uh, we're all devoted to supporting our authors in any which way. So it might be as an agent, it might be from the finance department, it might be from the rights department, but our aim is to put the author at the heart of everything we do. And so of that team of 15, how many agents are there? There are five full-time primary agents. Okay. There are two who have other responsibilities but also look for first time authors um, there are four people in our uh, foreign rights department who are dedicated to selling these books internationally and then there was a sort of a support team sure. of assistants and people who work in the finance team. And the roster of authors how many writers do you represent between you? We, well it's a slightly movable feast and of yeah. course these things are cyclical so you know, if an author's immersed I represent a historian called Ben Wilson who's immersed in writing a book called Metropolis. Um, 
and there was a flurry of sales last year. I mean, I think he was sold from Jonathan Cape, and then he went on to sell in 20 to 25 countries. But he's now immersed in writing the book. So as much as I love chatting to him and his companionship, and so, he's in the country doing that, whether there are other writers who are delivering books or having books published, where you're suddenly much more focused on them and what they need and how we how we support them. And in terms of, um, you mentioned the, uh, the renamed slush pile, and there, you talent know, pool, yeah. talent, the talent pool. Um, this is certainly something that we we'd spoken to with the other agents and also you know the other publishers in terms of that kind of that kind of blind you know approach. If someone goes through the writers and artists yearbook and, and looks, does stuff come through that way? I mean, how how realistic? I think an well, we've always that? had a very high strike rate yeah. with our talent pool. Yeah. Indeed, uh, DBC Pierre, who I represent, came from that talent okay. pool and went on to win the Booker Prize yeah. uh, with his first novel. So we have a long history of that and we're very proud of that. We pay a great deal of attention yeah. to the manuscripts coming in. We get probably between four to 5,000. I was going to ask you what kind of volume of stuff are you getting? Um, but I think now with the rise of the creative writing schools, yeah. it's perhaps harder to find... Um, uh, it's harder to find the talent that we looked for previously. Having said that, I'm just about to send out a writer who we found from the talent pool. Okay. But she's somebody who has been to a creative writing school, has won a couple of short story prizes, but didn't pick up an agent at the time. So okay. that's interesting. You know, she's yeah. gone through a process. She wasn't found by an agent then, but. Um, I mean, it's it's interesting. Certainly, you know, in my experience, I I was introduced well, to Patrick as a colleague of his, represented him. A lot of writers I know, it's it's one thing like that. You know, that it is through a connection or something like that. How, what sort of fraction of the writers you're taking on do you think come recommended by an individual, or and what what comes? I think it really by? varies from agent to agent. Yeah. Um, I mean, we all get sent a lot of stuff. Yeah. We all aim to read a lot of stuff. Um, if I look, I mean, one of the things I would say is that every book I represent, and behind it is an author, yeah. every book I represent has a different story. Sure. There's no, there's no one route. Yeah. And sometimes if I'm asked to talk at creative writing schools, um, that's the point I make, to tell the story of each book. Could you give a couple of examples, maybe, that, that show the different ways uh, this could work? Well, I suppose um, I went to a launch party... Okay. And I was introduced to this fantastically interesting and charismatic uh, young journalist called Dolly Alderton. Okay. And I knew immediately that she was going to be a superstar. And so I kind of made a co- contact with her and okay. connected with her. And she'd written very little then. Right. But I just had a very strong instinctive feeling about her. Okay. And then we, I represented her for four years. Not a huge amount was happening, but we'd meet and talk. And then... We worked together on a proposal for a year and then there was an auction and it's now been in the bestseller list for 12 weeks. Which is the book? Called Everything I Know About Love. Okay. So that was one route. Um, As I say, uh, Vernon Cord Little came to me on the talent pool, as it were, been turned down by 13 other agents. And in that situation, what did you see in it? What kind of spoke to you? Just just could hear this amazing voice that just wouldn't go away so unique and unusual just sort of beating down my brain you know. and it, you know that's looking at the I suppose the inward funnel for you in terms of the 
the, the outward funnel or the, the relationships that you're having with with publishers how how is that working are you are you when when say and maybe you could talk first about nonfiction and secondly about fiction what do, how do you how do you sell a book uh, well I'm very unusual as an agent because I have a very 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 diverse list okay most agents tend to be a bit more sort of specializing in certain areas yeah. you know I do a range of stuff from you know natural science to history to global economics to graphic novels to you know very serious literary fiction to what I would call smart fiction to children's books to YA to books about art so it's a very broad brief is that very deliberate from your behalf it's just it's just the way it is I suppose Uh, but I always do it from the point of view of writing I don't do it because I think it's an interesting subject and I try and kind of shape a writer to write it. I sure. do it with somebody who's got a really, really um, a brilliant writing talent, or I believe they have a great writing talent. So how they choose to manifest that is very broad-ranging. Um, but yeah, I mean, I kind of, I've, I've been in publishing a very long time. I've been an agent for 25 years. We work very hard to sustain uh, connections with imprints and with individual publishers and editors. And I'm very lucky with the team, who are the younger generation than I, so they're forming new relationships. We share a lot of information. Uh, if I'm sending a book out, I'll talk to the team and say, you know, who do you think? And take advice. We're very collegiate in that How sense. big is the distribution usually, or does that vary? How many editors would you be sending to? Varies enormously. I mean, I tend to submit quite widely, yeah. um, because I think everybody deserves a chance. Sometimes there's a book that is so particularly for one person and I'm only with agreement with the author but I say let's just try that one person okay. and because I think they're so unique that hasn't always doesn't always work yeah um, but and I sometimes get it wrong but that you've still got a second phase where you can go to more people I mean I was very interested when Patrick was selling my book the way that the way that we did it was that um, we you know, it was about the army, and we'd, we'd worked on the proposal and developed all of that. But actually, the the initial thing he did, and I think the thing that probably sold the book, was nothing to do with the proposal. But we had a he wanted a writing sample, and I had a and I'm, I'd done a trip to Afghanistan to do a piece for the Economist uh, and written you know an Economist story out of that. But I'd also done a a kind of much longer, much more personal piece that was meant to run in Newsweek, and in the end, the magazine had changed its view, and they had it run as quite a kind of Vanilla is perhaps the wrong word, but a you know, fairly standard newspaper, news magazine piece that had been edited to that. But I had this first draft that was very personal, was quite gonzo. And I, this was three years ago, but I think what he did was he just sent that out to uh, 15 editors or so and said, you're getting a proposal from this guy, but no other information. And they, I mean, it was... It was it was masterful, really. I mean, they five of them bit. Suddenly, they all wanted to meet and everything and everything like that. And it'd be very nice to say that was all on the benefit of my prose. But I think that the Patrick's you know manner of operating was very clever there as well. I mean, how much how much of an art is there to you know how you how you go about doing this, how you foster excitement and things like that? Uh, I may be the wrong person to ask that. I Why? don't have an answer to that. But you must be good at it, though. I don't know. Okay. I don't know whether I'm or not. Well, how do you... Maybe another way to phrase it is, if you're a, you know, you're a repeat customer in, in this marketplace, you're dealing with the same people over and over, how do you go about kind of selling a book, you know, pushing pushing the idea and keeping your, you know, keeping your, your credibility, making sure that people 
you know, trusting the judgments you're making? How do you walk that I line? suppose it's by reputation. Yeah, yeah. And do you, is it, is it true that you're, you're dealing with people you've dealt with over and over again, it's the same? Sometimes, sometimes they're new people, yeah. Yeah. Is it exciting? Do you find that element? Yeah, yeah. I do, yeah. And how, how do you go about as well kind of guiding an author through that? I mean, I remember, again, my experience with Patrick, this was, this was hugely exciting to be in a book auction, but I didn't know at all how it worked. And I remember the preempt, and I had to have a preempt explained to me, and um, I went off and did a meditation retreat in the middle because I was myself That's a very good idea, yeah. going to pieces. But how do you, you know, both, I suppose both in that context, but more broadly in the gestation of a book, how do you, how do you manage authors? You know, their, their feelings and aspirations, their excitement frustration? Well, that's the million dollar question, isn't mm. it? Um, I suppose you'd have to ask my authors. Okay. What would you, what would be, um, what would you advise authors, you know, both, both kind of aspirant and perhaps people that are slightly more established, what are the things that agents always wish that they did or didn't do perhaps? Every author is so different to me and I have such a different relationship with each one that I, I can't really answer that question. Okay. Um, there's no right or wrong. Right. Okay. And in terms of the just some, on some of the mechanics, when you're when you're selling a novel, do you tend to submit a complete manuscript? Yeah, yeah. I do. Yeah, yeah, I do. I think it's hard to sell on the partial. Okay. Unless that author is well established. Um, I think it's hard unless it's so brilliant that it's just yeah. I- impossible. To sort of deny it, sure. but I think in a difficult market, it's quite it, it, you know you might be doing an author a disservice. And how much, um, say, with with one of these first time writers who are coming through, how much editorial work will have gone on? Very enormous. With the manuscript, I think my record is fourteen drafts of a book pre-submission. Yeah. Did it sell? Yeah. Yeah. And again, with with that, how do you how do you frame that? You know, to the to the writer and so forth. It was just, um, in fact, I've done that twice. Probably, uh, it's it, um, just to make the book better, really. Yeah. But the payoff was that both were paid considerable sums of money, so they could see the outcome. I mean, they had to trust me. But have you ever had done that many drafts and not sold? No, but I have. I have obviously not. I mean, there've been things I've sent. Every agent yeah. has sent things out and been disappointed when sure. it hasn't sold. Sure. No, there's no, you know, there's nothing. I'm sure, you know, every single agent, however brilliant they are in this company, has sent something out which hasn't sold. Yeah. It's been immensely disappointing. And how often, again, with with fiction, is there then a, a further round of editing that would go on once? Very difficult. Once it's very difficult in this market. Once a book's gone out, if it's been agented thoroughly, yeah. it's very rare that you can go back, re-edit it, and send it out again. No, I mean within the publishing company. How much you know would is does the book that you sell to publishers is that generally fairly similar to what it's published? Yes, I think nowadays yes. I mean, I think you might get a twenty percent, ten to twenty percent sort of change okay. once you get to the, the edit. But I've rarely seen a bigger edit. I've rarely seen a manuscript be sort of deconstructed and sort of rebuilt. Yeah, and increasingly less so now. Is there a difference between? Um, Debut and, and second novels with that, do you think? 
Well, the second novel, usually an agent has worked very hard on the first yeah, novel. Yeah. A second novel has to, the, the centre of gravity has to shift to the editor in the publishing house sure. in terms of editorial. I mean, I st- obviously still read every manuscript that's um, second novel that comes to me. I make my suggestions and I may work very closely with the editor yeah. you know, and have that conversation with them, but I rarely would deal directly with the author okay. unless there was a major problem which needed to be fixed before we submitted to an, ag- uh, to a, a, an editor. And how does the picture compare with, with non-fiction in that? Are you always selling off proposal, generally? Or? Generally, yeah, yeah, generally. And you're, I mean, there, there's obviously a lot of ways to skin the proposal cat. Do you have a a favoured way of doing that in terms of three chapters and a synopsis or different ways of Again, I think that I think, you know, you must be very led by what material you have. I mean sometimes yeah. you need, you know, a forty thousand word proposal and three chapters and some sometimes you need ten pages. Yeah. It's very different, it depends. And you know, it's I'm just trying to think of Dolly. It was quite a detailed proposal, but it wasn't that long, maybe twenty pages and I had yeah. an eight way auction on it. Okay. Uh, and she's delivered a brilliant book. You know, Ben Wilson. I think the proposal was maybe yeah, it was very detailed. What's his book about? This is Metropolis. It's called Metropolis. Yeah, okay. it's a it's a it's a history of the world t- told through uh, the growth of the the, 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 the the sort of evolution of the city. Okay, and in that case, how was the proposal structured? Well, he's a very well-established author. He'd been in the Sunday Times bestseller list. This was his sixth book, I think. So it was just a very, very detailed proposal. So even interesting that even though he was very established, there was still a lot of detail. Yeah, and it was a big... He'd he'd written largely about British and American history, and we we wanted him to make a leap fully into the international market. So to do a lot of research and... A lot of thinking about how the book was structured. And whose idea was that? His idea or his publishers? It was his. It, it, I worked with him on it. Because it's interesting. We, so he changed publishers with this book. Right. When we interviewed Anthony Beaver, he, we were talking about the gestation of Stalingrad, yeah. and he said that, you know, he had wanted to do a completely different book about sort of social change in yeah. the early nineteen nineties, and editor said, like, we'd like you to do the Battle of Stalingrad and he was initially reluctant. He had young children and all of that. Yeah. How often do you do you encounter that sort of situation where? you have an idea or a publisher has an idea and then it's it's the other way. It's never... I, I, or is that an overly simplistic way? Yeah, that, it, I mean, you might have an idea, but, but what, if an author starts working on it, it becomes their idea very, very quickly. Okay. Um, um, so, I mean, it was... Ben's, ben had an idea and I encouraged him because I felt that this was the book that could make the leap. And yeah. indeed, you know... So far, so good. It clearly has, you know, selling all over the world. And how much are you... Is it predominantly editors in London you're dealing with? Or I deal you... with editors here and in America and in Canada. Um, we form very, very close relationships with our with European editors as well. Sure. So I have friends all over the world. I'm very lucky in that respect. And you mentioned earlier um, the whole creative writing course emergence piece. What what are your views on on that? Because it's also something that you uh, CNW offer. Uh, no, of. there's a creative writing course. There's a Curtis Brown creative okay. writing course right. here. Um, I'm, you know, all of us probably are invited to go and talk on, yeah. you know, to give a little talk at creative writing course about what we do and how we did it, yeah. uh, do it. And I've done, I've done 
I, I go to the Faber Academy quite a lot to do that. Sure. And I found some amazing authors through the Faber Academy. Um, so yeah, it's an interesting, it's something that's emerged in the last 10 years. It's a yeah. very sort of vibrant sort of cottage industry, if you like. And some very, very amazing, very good and interesting writers have emerged from those courses. Yeah. Um, largely in the kind of smart fiction commercial field, perhaps less so in the... In what would the, smart fiction be, to give my experience? Smart fiction is, the, miniature, the miniaturist is smart fiction. Okay. Um, at the moment I'm just trying to think what the smart fiction would be it's the beautifully written books but with quite a strong storyline okay it's sort of more more accessible than traditional literary fiction or yes okay it's a very odd I mean these are not very helpful definitions for readers because yeah. as a reader you just choose a book you love and you read it and then you decide whether you like it or not sure but in, in publishing terms you know I'm probably not going to send a very literary novel to Transworld and Faber. Sure, yeah, yeah. But I can send a, I can send a smart a book that I think is smart fiction to Transworld and Faber yeah. to both. Why do you think that, that maybe that kind of style of book is emerging from these courses? Is it because it's easier I, I just to think, I think it's, I mean, I think, the, I think the courses are quite, a lot of what you learn on these courses is quite technical. About story construction. And it's about story construction, storytelling. Yeah. And I think if you're a high, what I would call sort of haute uh, literary, writer of literary fiction, yeah. while story is important, it's not necessarily the, 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 the driving, beating bit of what you do, sure. there are other things that are kind of interconnecting. And do you see that changing, perhaps? All these. Well, everything changes. Yeah. Everything changes. Um, I mean, I think we live in a world of much greater competition in terms of you can watch Netflix, you can access Amazon Prime, you can, I mean, you can watch something, listen to something, you know, yeah. 24 hours. It, you know, when I grew up, you, we, we watched an hour of telly, you might listen sure. to the radio and then you read, you know, so it's much greater competition and I think those mediums, particularly TV series and, and, and films, is developed is pushed by much have much longer narrative drives, and I, I think fiction is competing with that. And you, you said that you see an increasing number of your writers writing for TV as well. Yeah. How, how over what period has that? Well, there's been, as I'm sure you're aware, a massive kind of um, explosion in sort of TV is you know suddenly accounting for sort of half the world's production. In yeah. the old days, it was about ten percent. So um, inevitably. If you have writers who, with great characters, who tell good stories, um, which are funny or you know thrillerish or you know original, you know TV is going to be attracted to them. I think. Yeah, I mean, I suppose if one looks back at the thirties or whatever, there's all the classic examples of Fitzgerald going to Hollywood and you know not working out neither for the film nor for him or anything mm. like that. Do you think that there's a that there are any pitfalls of doing that? Well, I think that's slightly different. I think I think then. Kind of literally had to go to Hollywood, you know, yeah. and you sat well, in a sort of in the studio. Or like yeah, that, sat in a studio being paid for $50 a day to write a film. I mean, I think it's very different now. So, yeah. you know, uh, you know, bringing in a good writer to a script or adapting his or her own novel or whatever it is, you, you're, you're in a slightly more powerful and influential creative role. And um, you're part of the, you know, the curation of the process. 
and you have a much greater voice. And you, you were mentioning earlier some of the, the notion of a difficult market for fiction. How do you, how do you see the, the way the literary marketplace is, is working? Well, a few books are selling huge quantities yeah. and a lot of books are struggling, however good they are. Okay. Do you think, does that cross between fiction and non-fiction? Yeah, I would say so. Sure. And in terms of what that means for advances and things like that? Yeah, advances for, for you know, first-time writers, both for fiction and non-fiction, have dropped considerably, I and mean, there's no doubt about that. Yeah. That's why more and more people are seeking the international market. Sure. And why perhaps there might be too much emphasis on shaping material to make it a bit more mainstream. Okay. And with, of, you know, you mentioned again, first-time non-fiction, sorry, first-time novelists, how many of them are go on to have successful careers? Not just of people you represent, but of, you know, people entering that market. Well, some people don't, some people don't make it. Yeah. Um, I think, you know, the second novel can be very challenging. I think by the third or fourth novel, if you're not breaking into the market or you're not finding a readership, then it gets really tough. Yeah. It gets really tough for you, it gets really tough for a publisher because you've kind of got to reinvent the wheel. Um, and there are so many new writers sort of ploughing in that it does get extremely tough. And the level of success is determined by, by earning out in advance or by meeting a sales All point. sorts of different... Um, all sorts of different criteria. Yeah. I mean, I would hope that I would always... I mean, I have... You know, one particular writer who had a huge success with her first novel, struggled with the next four. One was published with a tiny imprint called Charles Boyle because we couldn't find a mainstream publisher. But this last novel, I think eight people bid on it. Okay. And I'm a great believer in sticking it out with people, yeah. uh, particularly if I think they're very, very talented. But, you know, sometimes the market... You know, there are great writers, and sometimes the market connects with them and interweaves with them, and sometimes it doesn't. Where do you see the, the position of independence? We, it's interesting, we've interviewed Hannah Westland from, from Serpent's Tale and also an editor from Head of Zeus. Um, we've got Louisa Joyner from Faber coming on um, in a few weeks. Where do you see them fitting in an increasingly corporatised and homogenised publishing marketplace? Well... Hmm... Or is that an unfair way to characterise it? I think it? that's an unfair way to characterise it. I mean, I think, you know, you know, if you work at Chatter or Jonathan Kay, are you homogenised and corporate? It might be a little bit corporate, but yeah. you're still focusing on finding really original, unusual books. Sure. Uh, Faber is committed to finding original and literary and unusual books. But Louisa, funnily enough, I know very well, has been slightly brought in to bring something more slightly more maybe diverse, slightly more commercial list into, into the company. So is she mirroring a corporate world or is the corporate world, you know, mirroring her? I mean, I think you could, there are all, all sorts of, it's a bit of a hall of mirrors. And there also seems to be an element talking to some of them that they, you know, the independents regarding themselves in some ways like a farm system, that you know, what they hope to do is, is say, bring someone like... Um, the lady who wrote the Essex Serpent, for example, who comes through their system, and then you know it's sometimes tragic to see them go to a big publisher for a bigger advance, but but that kind of builds them. Creed. I mean, do you see it as a sort of symbiotic thing? So I would never, I would never move a writer like that who'd been 
created um, and built to an independent company to a larger company just for the sake of money. What if they asked but to be moved? If they asked me, that's a different thing. Yeah. Um, but I think sometimes there's a, there's a certain level where a big company can just say, we can do this, this, this and this, and yeah. an independent can't. And sometimes an author of that stature, I'm not saying, talking about Sarah Perry because I'm looking forward to her new book, and I know that's being published by Serpent's Tale, but they might just get, I feel more comfortable yeah. in a bigger environment. In a Is there ever a risk, without you know naming any individual writers, that when an author gets very established, that then they can, in some ways, become more resistant to being edited or to the input of... You know, yes, on their, on I think that quite often happens, yeah. And how do you manage that? Do you sometimes find yourself in the middle of quite a difficult situation in that case? I, 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 I think, I think I, I have seen... I think it's a fine balance. My own experience of editing with an author is I will make many suggestions. Yeah. Um, and if there's a point when authors says to me, I really don't want to change it, then that's I respect that. Um I have seen situations where an author has said, I really don't want to change it. And I've gone, are you really sure? Because it's quite an issue. They go, yes, yes, yes. And then the book hasn't sold, you know. Interesting. Hasn't sold the publishers or hasn't sold? Both. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I um, I find it very interesting coming from a journalistic background where one is very used to being edited and having very often very limited say in that process to, to seeing how you know the process is different with... With book editors and so forth. I mean, is there sometimes? I think it's very. I think every every pro, everyone has a different working practice. Yeah. I mean, when with in terms of the actual practicalities, when you're working on a manuscript, how do you do it? Do you mark it up electronically? Yeah. Or? Sometimes, sometimes I'll just make my notes. Sometimes it's interesting. This novel I'm about to send out. I mean, it wasn't. It didn't really need a line edit. It there were just some. It, there were some strengths and weaknesses. And I just had, and the and the, the author was kind of b- b- very smart and really thoughtful. So it was just really an editorial conversation. Okay, I mean, certainly, yeah. My feeling is that you know it has to be a conversation, right? If you're, you can't, oh, you, yeah, can't, you can't, you can't do it on your own. You can't. can't pay and I suppose moving from that to self-publishing, what are your views on that? Uh, I think that's fine. I think it's very hard to make it work. Yeah. I mean, you know, you've, you can be, the sort of, Americans have a phrase for it, they call the authorpreneurs. Okay. The people who self-publish often the people who literally devote their whole life to writing and selling their own books and they create, you know, huge social media platforms and they kind of uh, do events and promotions. I mean, they're just geniuses at sort of self-promotion and you can make a lot of money out of it. Yeah. They, they tend to be books that don't really interest me, but that's, that's have you fine. have you bought anyone in who's been a self published author who's then? I haven't. No. Would you consider doing that? Of course, if I love the book. Yeah. But I've never loved the book. Do you see what uh, attitudes changing in that in that direction at all? Um. Well, I think there was a big flurry about I don't know seven years ago when everybody thought, oh, Amazon's starting a publishing house and everything's yeah. going to be ebook and everybody's just going to publish their book on the internet and it's the end of publishing. And, and I, I never that really, didn't really thought, happen, right? No, yeah. it didn't really happen because the books we read usually yeah. have been carefully kind of curated, edited, styled in a very complex and interesting process between. Yeah author and agent, author and editor, you know, 
the jacket, the marketing, the sales team, the PR. You know, it, it is a very, a very uh, long and complicated process, and lots of very highly skilled and experienced people play their part in that. Do you think it helped that you've been on the other side of the fence, that you've been an editor? Definitely. Yeah. Definitely, definitely, definitely. And it helped that I had done PR marketing. Oh, really? In Hawksy, okay. yeah. Because we spoke to Hannah Westland. She'd been an agent and then become a publisher, mm. but she said it's much more common to go the other way, to yeah. so have been a publisher and then and then move across. Yeah. Why is that, do you think? Because people want the independence or the... I think, yes. I mean, you're much more... As an uh, as an agent, you're much more sort of self um, propelling, as it were. Yeah. And, um, and you eat what you kill as well, right? And sorry. You eat what you kill. Um. Do you? I don't know. Well, you're. I mean, in terms of your certainly what she mentioned as well that you're, um, you know, you have you're, you're dependent on selling books to to make a living ultimately. Right? Yeah. I don't quite understand the analogy. Perhaps I'm being very stupid. That if you, if you, as she was saying that ultimately the agents can make a lot more money than publishers potentially. If that it was potentially unlimited because it was. I'm a, not sure that's true. Actually, I mean, I think there's quite a lot of misnomer. There's quite a lot of misinformation about how much money agents make. Um, uh, I mean, could you correct us? What? Could you, in terms of their, their thoughts? To well, us? I think you know. Depends who you agents sure. don't. I mean, I, I am motivated to take on writers because I love their writing. Yeah. The most successful writers are the ones who have never really thought about whether they'll make a huge amount of money or not. Sure. And in terms of the advice that you would offer to, to aspirant writers, what would you think the... Because, again, I think part of the reason we want to do this podcast is publishing can seem a world that is so opaque if you're, if you're outside it. Um, and you know, it's certainly very interesting to us to talk to people in as many different silos of it as possible. What, yeah, what advice would you would you offer to an aspiring writer? Yeah, uh, it depends what stage they're at. I mean, yeah. if it's somebody, let's think, take a couple of examples. Say someone who's maybe fresh out of university who thinks that they they have a novel in them. Yeah, that's, that's the worst. I can imagine. Yeah. You just have to say, I think it's a famous story about a young man who sat next to W. W. Somerset Maugham at dinner and said. I want to be a writer, you know, do you have any advice? And W. Somerset Maugham just said, right, and so went on eating his soup. Yeah. There's also that scene in that Somerset Maugham novel, where he's in Paris and someone brings out the novel they've been working on for years and it is unreadably bad. Yeah. But in terms of, you know, someone who maybe doesn't have connections with publishing in London and things like that, who maybe has been working on a manuscript for a long time, what should, what should they do? It depends. I mean, I think, I think, I think... Connections are helpful, but they're not everything. Okay. I think, um, I mean, I sometimes think, you know, join a community of writers, whichever yeah. way, because I think so many budding writers have said to me, reading their work aloud, listening to getting to feedback was a sort of crucial part of the process. Yeah. Um, if in doubt, you know, find a, a re- re- reputable freelance editor to read and comment on your work and to help, you, you know, edit... Um, I think the courses are very good. Some of them are very, very good. You yeah. know, Bath Spa, the creative writing course here, Faber, extremely good. They're not cheap, but they're good. I think that's helpful, and you do get a community of agents and publishers around those courses looking for people, so yeah. that's helpful. Um, but there are all sorts of ways to write. 
Yeah. You know, you can write a diary, you can write non-fiction, you can write fiction, you can write for the screen. I thought interestingly in the, the piece that you co-wrote for The Guardian that, that, that for a few years ago, the line saying, like, you have to think, is publication the right end for this? You know, is this a piece of personal therapy? Is it yeah. something yeah. else? You know? And there's no shame in that. Yeah. I mean, in, in terms of the, the paid-for editing, so, okay, sure, we'll, we'll wrap stuff, but in terms of the, a couple of, couple of final questions, I suppose, the, the first thing would be in terms of, um, you know, the money piece. If someone is uh, paying for editorial services or things like that, how do they? How do you know that you're... Just you have to check up on a lot of sites, see who they've worked with, um, check their prices, don't get kind of drawn into a sort of, you know, we'll edit your book if you pay us and we'll then we'll give you 500 copies. You know, be yeah. very, very careful about checking it out yeah. and, and get some comparisons. I mean, there's nothing like, as I say, a community of writers because everyone has kind of the intel yeah. about what's going on. But check out different people and make sure you know who they've worked with. And in terms of advice to aspirant agents, to people who are interested in working in... yeah. In, the, in, in that side of the industry themselves. Yeah. What would you advise them? Oh, just trust your judgment. In terms of becoming a literary agent? Oh, no, just being one. Uh, I think it's, a, I think it's, it's, it's not, it's, it's rarely something you can sort of, sort of, you know, drop into, you know, okay. you do need to have publishing experience, I think. More and more. So. How does it? Yeah. How, in terms of the people you take on, where, what are their? Well, we're very unusual in that most of the people who who work in the company have started here through internships okay. or assistants and have built their way up. And we we take a very proactive view in promoting people from within. Sure. And That's what we like to do. With the interns, are they paid for the? In of that course. Position? Yeah. Yeah. And the final thing: where do you see the whole kind of discussion about diversity? in publishing, both in terms of writers and authors, but also in terms of people in editorial positions and uh, publishers, agents, that, that sort of thing. You know, it is the criticism being it's still a very middle class, still a very white profession, still very London-centric. Yeah. Where do you see that? I agree kind of, with you. Yeah. Um, I think it'll take some time for everybody to make the necessary changes, but I yeah. think they will come. And I think it's really important. Um, and I think probably going to see five years, five to ten years, with a big kind of, it's a bit like sort of turning one of those huge boats around, you know. Yeah. It takes a bit of time, but I think it will happen. Do you think, is there, I mean, there's, you know, there's a lot of talk about these things, but do you see within publishing companies there's sort of willingness for people yeah, to put their money Yeah, I do. I also would point out that actually when, when we receive a manuscript, if somebody sends it in and says, by M.J. Smith... We don't know whether that's a man or a woman. We don't know about the colour of the skin or whether they're physically challenged. Or yeah. we don't know. You know that. Do many use initials? Yeah, but what I'm saying is, is you don't. You know, you read a book. Sure. And you read it, and if you like it, you pursue it. Sure. I suppose the the devil's advocate for that would be that you know it depends. As you say, a lot of these things come in via connections and via, you know... Not, no, not the... No, 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 no. I mean, the four to 5,000 manuscripts that come into us don't come via connections, no. But what fraction of those do you take to market? Well, a high proportion compared to most people. Um, but we take to market what we believe to be good. Yeah, but I mean, it surely it's... I mean, you might argue that, you know, ha, ha, you know... Submitting a book yeah. via that process, 
there may be behind that educationally or socially otherwise systemic prejudice or lack of education or lack of whatever and you might argue that and you might well be right but what I'm saying to you is when a book comes into us we're not really considering uh, sex you know gender uh, social class ethnic uh, background physical ability we pick these books off the slush pub because we like what we read but I suppose what I would say is what what fraction of the things that, that you know you're selling are coming from that slush part, really? Um, well, I've taken two off this year. Yeah. Um, you know, probably between us with 50, you know, probably maybe 15 to 20 books a year. Yeah. But I'm not taking on... I'm not taking, no, I know you haven't established this. Yeah, no, but, uh, you know, I'm not taking yeah. on loads through personal connections at all, actually. Right, OK. Well, look, Super, thanks for finding time on a very busy day and for speaking so candidly and wishing you all the best with your Thank you very much. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed that. Now, Simon, what have you been up to? (laughs) Um, I am doing the final things on my book, which goes to the copy editor in a matter of days. Uh, I've also got some other magazine commissions from Esquire, from The Guardian Long Read and from Business Week. I'm going to preempt this because I know Cassie's going to be mean about it. <laughs> I've, also, I've also reorganised the whiteboard in my study in which I'm sitting at When the you moment. say reorganised, what was the word that you used about it? Um, Rationalised. Yes, that's the one, yeah. Yeah, that one. It's now clear. There's obvious colour coding. Um, I think it's... Well, I think it's very useful. Cassie's very rude about it. There we go. Uh, Cassia, what about you? I've been being normal. Um, I've been uh, working on my next book pitch and trying to organise the launch party uh, for The Golden Thread, which is now coming out uh, on October 4th in the UK. And has been getting some foreign rights deals, which is really really exciting. Can you say where? I don't think I can quite yet. It's uh, it's still sort of really preliminary stages, but we've got no fewer than three foreign rights deals, which is really great news. Very cool. Um, And and yes, then the new book pitch, uh, which is longer and more involved than ever before. Goodness. Anyway, this has been Always Take Notes, hosted by me, Simon Aikman. And me, Cassie Sinclair. Our producer is Nicola Keane. Uh, our social media is handled by Zara Hankier. Our music is by Jess Danheiser, and James Edgar does our graphic design. And of course, you can find us on various forms of social media. We're on uh, Facebook and Instagram, at Always Take Notes. We're on Twitter, at Take Notes Always. And you can find us on Patreon if you search always take notes and if you've enjoyed the show we'd love if you fancied leaving a review on itunes or chipping into that aforementioned crowdfunding page thank you very much